You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. How beautiful to be here together this morning. People of all ages gathered in one body for worship. This age-old practice of gathering to light a flame, to sing a song, to reflect, to greet oneself and one another with love, and to recognize that we are not alone on this journey. It is a familiar rhythm that nourishes the spirit regardless of age. And the more variety of experience we invite in and recognize, the richer the worship for all. That is why we're moving to having sharing Sundays twice a month on the first and third Sundays, so we can more regularly experience the wild beauty of every age and stage of life reconstituted here in the sanctuary. Now, in order to make multi-generational worship work well, I searched online for some tips and inspiration. And my colleague, C.B. Beal, has written a really helpful set of rules for children in worship. So I started with what they wrote, and then I jumped off and wrote some of my, my own rules based on what I know about us in particular. Here they are. Seven rules for children in the worship service. One. If you find that you are sitting in front of a child and blocking their view, lean to the side. Two, grab a crayon or two on your way in, and if the children seated behind you are wrestling papers, please share your crayons. Three, if a baby cries, the universe is definitely sending you a message. Don't miss it. If you are lucky enough to be sitting very nearby, Thank the baby and the grown-up who brought them for that gift. Four, if the teenagers are whispering and you can't hear them, cup your hand around your ear (laughs) and lean in. Teenagers talk about cool and interesting things. If you still can't make out what they're saying, be sure to connect with them during the welcoming and joy. Five, When a child sitting nearby is very squirmy, practice emanating unconditional love. Sacred opportunities to live out your values of acceptance and compassion often arrive disguised as bad timing. Don't fall for it. Six, when a child is running around giving everyone high fives during the time of greeting your neighbor, make sure to give them an extra fun high five, and then, High-five the next several adults you see. And seven, when the three-year-old insists on standing on the front pew, turned backwards, looking at the rest of the people, don't miss the opportunity to meditate on their face. Let it remind you of who you once were and that every person in this sanctuary who is not small once was that young, even you. Let it remind you that this is our calling, to create spaces where unbridled curiosity and authenticity, wild joy, 
the longing for human connection and the values of justice, inclusion, and love live together in harmony. Come, let us worship together. Our reading this morning is from Ross Gay. He's a professor of English at Indiana University Bloomington. He's a writer of poetry and essays, a gardener, an educator, and this reading is from his most recent book called The Book of Delights. He says this, among the most beautiful things I've ever heard anyone say came from my student Bethany talking about her pedagogical aspirations or ethos, how she wanted to be a teacher and what she wanted her classroom to be like. She said, what if we joined our wildernesses together? Sit with that for a minute. That the body, the life might carry a wilderness an unexplored territory, and that yours and mine might somewhere, somehow, meet, might even join. And what if that wilderness, perhaps the densest wild in there, thickets, bogs, swamps, uncrossable ravines and rivers, have I made the metaphor clear, is our sorrow. It astonishes me sometimes, no, often, how every person I get to know, regardless, everyone, regardless of everything, lives with some profound personal sorrow. Brother addicted, mother murdered, dad died in surgery, rejection by their family, cancer came back, evicted, fetus not okay. Everyone, regardless, always of everything. Not to mention the existential sorrow we all might be afflicted with, which is that we and what we love will soon be annihilated. Which sounds more dramatic than it might. Let me just say, dead. Is this, is this sorrow, of which our impending being no more, might be the foundation, the great wilderness? Is sorrow the true wild? And if it is, and if we join them, your wild to mine, what is that? For joining, too, is a kind of annihilation. What if we joined our sorrows, I'm saying? I'm saying, what if that is joy? You all bring me such delight. I know, I know I'm looking around this room and I'm seeing some people who are here for the first time, some people who are back that I haven't seen in a while, some folks who have been here a long time, you have your little place kind of staked out, your little pew 
you bring me delight, this coming together, holding all of who we are, the sorrow, the grief, the possibilities, you bring me delight. These same words, you bring me delight, are words I said to our four-year-old son as I poked my head into his bedroom on Thursday morning as he woke up and stretched and kicked off the blanket and smiled and wiggled at me and leapt out of bed. You bring me so much delight, I said. You and your brother, you bring me so much delight. The day has barely even started and you're the best part of my day. Your beautiful body, your eyes, the way you greet me, you bring me delight. I'll be real, not all parenting moments are like that, right? There are plenty of moments that there's less than delight that's present. But in that time, on Thursday morning, watching my youngest get out of bed, it was a moment of pure delight, of deep joy. And it reminded me why lately in church meetings, as we've been gathering with different committees and groups of people, we've been asking this opening reflection question that goes something like this. The world can be a hard, painful, lonely place. There is so much that breaks our hearts and weighs heavy on us, but that's not all that there is. There is also joy and delight. Joy might be the hardest of the spiritual practices, but joy is real. And so we, we've been asking, what is bringing you joy? right now. The answers are varied. Walking brings me joy. My grandchildren bring me joy. Helping to get an immigrant out of detention brings me joy. Being by the river brings me joy. So I've been living with that question, what brings me joy, trying to notice the things and people and places that bring me joy. And let me share one right now. It's the front yard at our home. Several years ago, I rented a sod kicker. Maybe some of you know what that is. It's this um, little contraption uh, that has a little kind of blade on it, and you can kick it as you push it um, along your lawn, and it'll tear up all the sod and kind of roll it into like a little turf uh, sushi roll is what it kind of looks like. <laughs> Maybe you've seen the, uh, a sod kicker or used one. So I rented a sod kicker and removed all of the grass on one half of the lawn at our, at our house. Um, it was a very steep hill, and so it was a little bit of an adventure doing it all, but I replaced the lawn with this native prairie mix, so native grasses and native flowers. I wanted something wild. I wanted something that didn't need to be watered. I wanted a piece of what used to be so very common, these wild grasses and prairies. And frankly, I wanted something that I didn't have to mow um, because that hill was really steep and it wasn't a fun project trying to mow the grass on the hill. So now, fast forward four years, this native hill is bringing me indescribable joy and delight with these towering big blue stem grasses, these yellow finches that dart about the grass, these blue and green dragonflies that fly in and among the flowers, these other insects, a variety of bees, rabbits that nest in there, and especially, especially these three to four foot tall Liatrice plants. It's also known as blazing star. Maybe you've seen them. They're these very tall plants with often purple flowers. It looks like a little, like Fourth of July, a mini Fourth of July firework that kind of exploded with this fluorescent purple on these flowers. And I delight, 
I take great joy in the monarch butterflies that love these flowers. When I was a child living in Fort Collins, Colorado, my parents first introduced me to monarch butterflies and the poisonous milkweed plant that they ate and the beautiful kind of translucent chrysalises that they would make, and then the butterfly itself, which would often go on a you know, up to 3,000 mile migration to overwinter in Mexico. And now our own four-year-old son delights in seeing these monarchs. This summer we would stand out there, sometimes the neighbors would come over and there'd be five or six or seven monarchs on one of these liatris plants and we were all in awe of this beauty. That's bringing me joy. And this joy is held in tension with the reality that the monarch population is plummeting. And it's not clear if monarchs or many other species on the planet will survive in the coming years as we are now in the sixth great mass extinction caused by, by humans. And that reality causes me a sorrow I can scarcely name, a sorrow about the world I've known and the world I've known of and how that world is ending. There is a deep and profound sorrow that our four-year-old, when he's my age, he may only vaguely remember what monarch butterflies are. But right now, there is marsh milkweed and regular milkweed and liatris in our yard, and these incredible butterflies land and unfurl their tongues and dance and land again and gently beat their wings. It is delight. It is joy. Maybe some of you are wondering in this space, and you're with me, I feel you, you're with me, and maybe you're wondering as you're with me, what does this have to do with the church theme this month we're exploring of why church? And that's a fair question, and this connects, and we'll get there. So let me just back up a little bit. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts uh, of On Being with Krista Tippett, and I keep coming back to an interview she recently did with Ross Gay, this writer and poet, gardener, educator, who we heard in our reading. Ross Gay is someone deeply attuned to the fullness and the nuance of joy. This question of joy, the question of how joy, he has identified that as something connected to his calling, his spirit's calling. And in this interview, he explains that his parents helped model an attentiveness to joy and to the deep awareness and imagination which can lead to joy. So in this interview with Krista Tippett, he shared this story I want to share with you this morning. He said, I recently remembered this story, and I will never unremember it. It was a story my dad told us, me and my brother, when we were in the car with him. I guess we were both in the car, and we wanted to push the windshield wiper fluid button. We were trying to reach over and push the button. And my dad wanted us not to, and told us if we pushed it, he said, look, you know the picture there? On the button, that's a flower. And if you push that button, the car will turn into a flower. <laughs> and if you do that, a huge bee will come and sting you. <laughs> and now, says Ross Gay, whenever I look at that button, I'm like, oh, that's a flower. I love this. I love the joy of imagining a button that turns the car into a flower. 
I love monarchs dancing on the liatris. And this joy that I've named, that we felt in that moment, this joy is and can be and must be held with the reality of such things as the Amazon rainforest burning, as the cancer returning, as the death of a loved one, as the wreckage of the latest hurricane, the completely racist and inadequate response to Hurricane Maria several years ago, to the legacy of slavery we still live with, to the reality that there are concentration camps in our country housed with immigrants. In the interview, Krista Tippett asks Ross Gay, many are wondering, how can we possibly be joyful in a moment like this? And Ross explains lovingly and with tender care, joy has nothing to do with ease, he says, and joy has everything to do with the fact that we're all going to die. He continues, when I'm thinking about joy, I'm thinking about that at the same time as something wonderful is happening and some connection is being made in my life. While that's happening, we are also in the process of dying and that is every moment. He goes on to say, life is ephemeral. And if we know we are dying and will die, then it's possible there is something that will happen between us. There's some kind of tenderness that might be possible as we hold that shared reality of death. It's not always going to happen, he says, because I might, I might get scared and, and do something else, but there's the potential, I think, for some kind of tenderness, even some kind of joy between us or some kind of joy in the world. And that connection happens when we realize in our bones that we are not here forever, when we recognize that truth and let that in and let our own wilderness, that deep inner wild landscape, that place that feels raw and fragile and filled with sorrow, whatever it is, when we let our wilderness join the wilderness of another. As Ross Gay says, it astonishes me how every person I meet lives with some profound personal sorrow. Brother addicted, mother murdered, dad died in surgery, everyone, regardless, always of everything. And he asks, is sorrow the true wild? And if it is, and if we join them, your wild to mine, what's that? What if we joined sorrows? I'm saying, what if that is joy? So why church? Why church? Because what if one of the purposes of church is to join our wildernesses, our wild places with the wild places of others? To join our sorrow with the sorrows of others and in that discover a deep, rich, life-giving joy. It's a seeming paradox. It's a mystery. It's a conundrum how joy and sorrow live together. Many of you may know this Buddhist tale about a man running from a tiger. He's running away from a tiger. He comes to a cliff. The tiger's in hot pursuit behind him. He sees there's a vine hanging over the cliff. He grabs onto the vine, throws himself over, and is hanging on the edge at the, on the cliff on this vine with a tiger pacing above him, hanging there. And he looks down 
and he notices another tiger has now seen him, and there's a tiger below him pacing. So with tiger above pacing and tiger below pacing, he notices the vine just above where his hands are holding. He notices two little mice coming out and starting to chew on the vine. And as he ponders his fate hanging there, tiger, tiger, mice, he sees in the crack in this cliff a beautiful, ripe, red strawberry. How delicious it is. Life is hard. Strawberries are sweet. Even in the face of death, joy can exist. It's an enigma, a riddle, a seeming anomaly. But friends, what I can tell you is that there are strange blessings to being a minister in a congregation and strange blessings to being a congregant in the congregation. One of the strange blessings as a minister is accompanying people through grief and loss and sorrow, whether it's the loss of a loved one or a struggle with mental health or just being at wit's end as a parent. And seeing that when these struggles are shared, whether in our prayers on Sunday morning or in a circle or small group, almost without fail, there are others who know the landscape and can enter the wilderness of that loss and sorrow, others who can join wilderness to wilderness. And in doing this, in joining wilderness to wilderness, the loss does not disappear, but the sense of alienation, of isolation, of loneliness is lessened, and there is a kind of joy. It is not an easy joy, but there is a kind of joy that emerges from those shared connections. So why church? to be a container where wilderness and wild can meet. Why church? To be a container where we can touch our mortality, to know we will not live forever, ever to know we come from dust, that we are carbon and nitrogen, hydrogen and oxygen, calcium and phosphorus. We will return to dust, but right now we are alive. Why church? To be a container where joy and live and breathe. The structure of this church from our worship service and the wonderful job that Lauren did in laying down some rules for worshiping with children. Some really good rules, I think. From what we do in worship to what we do in our circles to what we do in the classrooms to our justice efforts, all of that is designed, is intended to create a holy, sacred space where wilderness might touch wilderness, where joy might emerge amidst the tears, where we name what we love. From mass shootings to mass deportations to mass incarceration to the opioid epidemic to the climate crisis to our own personal crises, there is more than enough sorrow and wilderness to go around. So why church? So why church? Because when we join our heartbreak, when we join our sorrow, when we fight like hell for the things we love and the people and the planet we love, when we march for peace and strike for the climate, when we plant wildflowers, when we pretend the windshield wiper button on the car 
will turn the car into a flower. When we enjoy the sweetness of a strawberry, even as we know the mice will chew through the thread of our lives. Even then, friends, especially then, friends, there can and will be a deep and profound joy. I love you. And may the sorrow in our lives help us discover the richness and possibility and healing that exists when wild meets wild. May it be so. And amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.